Cause for Action is brought to you by the U.S. Chamber Institute for Legal Reform, the leading legal reform advocate in the U.S. and around the globe. Learn more at instituteforlegalreform.com. Welcome uh, to the latest edition of, of the ILR podcast. I have to tell you, though, that the Chamber Litigation Center is hijacking this episode um, to talk about the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, first, about trends and, and the big picture things we learned from the most recent term, uh, but then we'll also be focusing on what's, what's coming up in, in, in the next term, which includes some very important uh, arbitration and class action decisions. Um, but in any event, I am Daryl Josepher. I'm the Chief Counsel of the Chamber Litigation Center, and I'm joined today by Jen Dickey, uh, an Associate Chief Counsel here at the Litigation Center, who probably spends more time than any of us uh, focusing on the Supreme Court. Um, so, Jen, do you want to get us started? Uh, what, what should we talk about first? Well, I think we should start with uh, what the Chamber is doing with the Supreme Court. So, Last term was, uh, I would say, a successful uh, term for us at the Supreme Court. We had eight cert petitions that we supported um, as a Miki granted, uh, which I think was something like a 40% success rate, uh, which is just tremendous for people who follow the Supreme Court. They know that your chances when filing a petition are really small uh, at the cert stage. And, you know, it's the, the chamber support has. Uh, seemed like it's having a big effect um, for petitioners, something along the lines of the effect that the SG has when they petition. Um, that's the Solicitor General, for those of you who are not uh, steeped in all the acronyms, but really uh, tremendous at the cert stage. Then we participated in 14 merits cases this term. In the end, our record was 11 to two. You might say, oh, that's not for adding up to 14. That's because one case was dismissed as improvidently granted. So we'll set that case aside um, of the ones we participated in, but we received favorable outcomes 79% of the time. So I think the most notable thing about those decisions is that um, the majority were unanimous or decisions with only one dissent. Um, I'm sure you've heard the narrative out there that there's a a business court of five, four, six, three. Um, but our experience is that uh, the decisions in favor of business do not break down along ideological lines. They're fair decisions applying the text and sometimes business happens to benefit. Yeah, and I guess the flip side is also true, right? That when we do, when business sides interests do not prevail and obviously we, they don't prevail all the time, those also tend to be you know unanimous or close to unanimous. So my you know, not just this term, but looking back over the terms, it, it seems like in the in the cases where we participate, um, win or lose, there tend to be about, you know, seven or seven plus justices in the majority. Um, but, uh, but um, so beyond that, though, I guess for this term, the really interesting thing is Justice Barrett. And what, um, Jen, obviously, you know Justice Barrett well, because you worked on her confirmation first to the Seventh Circuit and then her confirmation to the Supreme Court. So what, you know, with, with, with that somewhat knowledgeable background, uh, when you look at, at what she did this year on the court, you know, what she wrote, what, what inklings are we getting about what type of justice she's going to be? 
you know, I think it's still uh, pretty early. There's a, a narrative out there that um, there's a, a three, three, three court with Justices Breyer, Sotomayor and Kagan on the left, Justice, the Chief Justice and Justices Kavanaugh Barrett in the middle and Justices Thomas, Alito and Gorsuch on the right. I don't think that narrative is actually uh, proven out if you look at the decisions themselves. I would say Justice Barrett's first term, there, there were some decisions she was more uh, incrementalist, but it's, it's hard to gen generalize from you know, a partial term. She started in November. What we have seen is she's a brilliant questioner. She asks questions from the bench that a lot of other justices end up picking up on um, in their question times or that other counsel feels the need to respond to. She's very focused on the factual record, uh, which you know perhaps comes from her time uh, on the Seventh Circuit, just really honing in on uh, or homing in on the the key issues uh, from a factual perspective. She did make a big difference in a case uh, for a, a business petitioner, the TransUnion case. That was a really important case having to do with class actions and specifically no injury class actions. We at the chamber have seen a lot of class actions brought by plaintiffs who really didn't have an injury from the con conduct that they were challenging. They sort of found a potential minor regulatory violation and, and brought a suit to see if they could um, benefit from it. And this was the first time I think the Supreme Court just flatly said, all class members, both named and unnamed members, have to have Article III standing to pursue, uh, to pursue their claims. And that's going to be really important for cutting back on class actions going forward. Yeah, that was, a, I, I thought, you know, probably the most important business case of the term. Uh, and what's, it, it is very reassuring for, you know, in terms of trying to defend against these abusive, no injury class actions. But it also is interesting just in terms of our program, because when it comes to these, these standing issues going up to the court, you know, we've been reluctant to push to encourage the court to take them up because Justice Thomas has a very idiosyncratic view of standing. Um, and so it back when it was, um, you know, so if we couldn't get him and we couldn't get Justice Ginsburg, you know, it wasn't clear where five votes were going to come from to, to have, you know, a to put real teeth into the Spokio standard. It was out there, but the question was, how, you know, how, 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 what, were, what, what did its teeth look like? And so now with this decision, uh, with Justice Barrett being on the court, you know, no, there are no five votes to, you know, do what Spokio seemed to on its face, which is to require that there actually be a meaningful injury, um, which I think could, could be hugely helpful in, in combating these no injury class actions going forward. Um, now, so that's Justice Barrett, uh, which is wonderful. You mentioned before the, you know, the six three, you know, the myth of a six three pro business court. One of the things I found so fascinating this year was just the oddity of the lineups. Um, in other words, you had, you know, supposedly more conservative justices and more liberal justices, you know, mixing together in really just bizarre lineups at times. Not bizarre, but you know, unex unexpected lineups at times that you know require a little unpacking to understand why way everyone felt the way they did in the case. Um, which, which did you think of, of those cases really rose to the fore? Yeah, I agree. I mean, we saw some unusual lineups today. 
mean, I already mentioned the unanimous decisions, but I just think it's important to note that, you know, decisions in which the chamber participated, you know, raising business interests were written in support of the chamber's position by all, all three of the justices who were viewed as more liberal. Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan wrote unanimous decisions agreeing with the chamber in Facebook, CIC services, and AMG capital management. Then you had sort of the unusual lineups. Um, actually, sorry, I'm sorry, before I go from there, I wanted to just sort of emphasize how, what that tells us about the, you know, how wrong these public narratives are, because Facebook, that was the Telephone Consumer Protection Act decision that on its face seems to have basically shut down an entire cottage industry of these TCPA suits, which if is an enormous deal because of how abusive those suits were. And as you said, that was written by Sotomayor. Um, and it was not, you know, it was not a close decision to the court because it just read the statute for what it says and what it says is what the plaintiff's lawyers have been wanting it to say. Similarly, with, with AMG against FTC, I find really interesting because that's been touted in the media as this highly politicized conservative decision, right? The, the issue there is whether the FTC can use its authority to go to court to get quick injunctive relief against uh, unfair or deceptive uh, practices to then also say, well, as part of injunctive relief, we want backward looking monetary relief. You know, we want, we want to recover all of your profits. We want to, you know, get past damages essentially. Um, and you know, there was some older authority that suggested that might be permissible, but the modern day Supreme Court, you know, including the liberal justices, just looked at it and said, you know, no, or most of the liberal justices just looked at it and said, no, that's just not what the statute permits. That's not what injunctive relief really entails. Um, which is why even when you read about some of these, you know, supposedly, you know, conservative retrograde decisions, you really, it's worth looking at who was actually involved in them because oftentimes in the business cases, it's, you know, as you said, these are, these are really important decisions being written by the more liberal justices. Um, but sorry for interrupting to emphasize the point you were just making, please, please continue. That's okay. I think that's a really important point. Um, then when you get to the unusual lineups, you know, I think we can start with a case like Penn East, right, which had to do with whether once the federal government approves a natural gas pipeline being built, the business who's building the pipeline can exercise the federal eminent domain power to condemn state lands that are necessary for building that pipeline. And the Supreme Court, in a, a decision with a sort of five four unusual lineup, said that they could. That's tremendously important because if businesses can't exercise this power, then the pipelines can just never be built. A state could just object and the pipeline would be no more. But here we had the Chief Justice, Justice Breyer, Justice Alito, Justice Sotomayor, and Justice uh, Kavanaugh supporting the pipeline. So you have two justices there who are deemed more liberal, one who is deemed to be from the more conservative end of the wing, and two from deemed to be you know, the center of the wing, uh, the center of the court. And those five said, yep, you can build the pipeline and exercise this power. In dissent, you had Justices Thomas, uh, Gorsuch, Kagan, and uh, Barrett. So once again, like someone from the middle, someone from the left, someone from the right, according to the narrative. Um, but that just did not prove to be the case when you actually looked at the decision itself and how things broke down. And I think that just shows that you know, the justices are not voting along ideological lines. They're bringing their different jurisprudential philosophies to a case and 
trying to understand it and make a decision. Um, I think Nestle versus Doe is like a really interesting case as well. Um, that had to do with the alien tort statute and it had two questions presented, one of which had to do with the, the amount of conduct you had to plead in the United States to have a sufficient nexus to the United States. To, so it was not violating the principle against extraterritoriality. Um, and then the second question had to do with um, whether domestic corporations are proper defendants under the ATS. And so the, the Supreme Court had, you know, an interesting opinion that kind of broke down, it was fractured. You had Justice Thomas writing the majority opinion, joined by everyone but Justice Alito as to the extraterritoriality question, holding that general corporate activity is not enough. You have to have something more to say this is really a United States-based suit, or there's like a sufficient nexus to the United States. Then you had a separate part of his opinion joined only by Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh that would have sort of cut back on uh, the idea of causes of action under the alien tort statute at all. For those of you who've been following the alien tort statute and the saga of alien tort statute litigation since it was sort of unearthed in the 1980s, uh, this is an attempt to maybe go back to the pre-SOSA days to cut off the idea that there could be new new causes of action under the ATS beyond the sort of three historical torts. Yeah, so- And then you have- Sorry, Jeff. Go ahead. Maybe we should back up just a touch. Um, yeah, the, the idea of the alien tort statute is that someone can sue in the US for what's supposed to be a, a basically a serious breach of international law um, occurring abroad, because if it occurred here, of course you could sue in the US. And so it has it has gotten the courts involved in all sorts of you know obviously highly unpleasant fact patterns uh, you know involving alleged atrocities abroad, but yes, um, so as you're saying the in Sosa the, the court kind of potentially opened the barn doors took what was a very narrow statute and made it look pretty broad, um, but since then the Supreme Court I, I don't remember the Supreme Court since then ever finding in favor of an alien tort statute plaintiff. No, it's been cutting it back for years. So th this is interesting because the Alien Tort Statute was enacted in 1789 as part of the first Judiciary Act, but really wasn't um, wasn't used much until the 1980s. And it's been used for a lot of, you know, alleged human rights violations cases. But the court has been sort of cutting back and cutting back uh, repeatedly on this, sort of returning to the historical foundations of the Alien Tort Statute, focusing on things like piracy, um, crimes against ambassadors. So uh, that was like an interesting lineup. And then you had, um, I, I mentioned the second question presented and you had five justices. It wasn't a majority, but you, had, you can count five justices rejecting the business's position on that and saying that domestic corporations can be uh, potentially you know, viable defendants under the alien tort statute. That was Justices Gorsuch and Alito, as well as Justices Sotomayor, Kagan, and Breyer. So um, just a really interesting, complex case, but uh, it kind of, again, proves the point that there's not really a, a clear ideological uh, valence that we're seeing. All true. Well, um, for, instead of belaboring much more what's already happened, should we talk about the, uh, the upcoming term now? Um, Absolutely. Ben, if you take the arbitration cases, I'll take the class action ones. So why don't why don't you go first? 
Sure. So there's two arbitration cases up at the Supreme Court this term, both of which should be interesting to businesses who use arbitration. The first is Servitronics versus Rolls-Royce. And this actually has to do with kind of discovery abuse in support of arbitration. So as, as businesses know that use arbitration, the whole point of arbitration is a streamlined process that can be more efficient for resolving claims, uh, sort of get away from the full court press, as it were, in terms of uh, discovery. There is a provision of federal law that allows courts to uh, pr provide, collect evidence to provide for foreign and international tribunals. The idea here historically is maybe a foreign court needs some evidence from the United States. And as a matter of, kind of comedy, we the, a, a United States court could uh, help collect the evidence for that international tribunal. But lately, people have been trying to use it in support of purely private commercial arbitration. And uh, we have filed a brief on behalf of the chamber arguing that that is not the correct reading of the statute. Um, not only is it sort of ahistorical, but it causes a one-way ratchet for American businesses because American businesses are the only ones who are going to be subjected to discovery under the statutes. People coming to the United States to get um, to get in evidence from American businesses that is contrary to the arbitration deal that they um, or even that third parties made. Because sometimes people are coming to the United States and trying to get evidence against third parties who aren't even part of the arbitration. Um, but the, they made a deal about arbitration and we think that they should be sort of bound to that deal. Um, the second case that's up at the Supreme Court is Badgerow versus Walters. This case has to do with whether you can get into federal court to uh, on a motion to either confirm or vacate an arbitral award. The Supreme Court has already held that you can get into federal court on a motion to compel arbitration if the underlying subject matter of uh, the arbitration is something that would belong in federal court. And that's important because people uh, on this call, I'm sure, are aware that state courts are sometimes hostile to arbitration. And so uh, members may want to be in federal court when they are arguing about whether there is a, a viable arbitration clause. But the same policy arguments would support uh, being in federal court for motions to confirm or vacate an award. The same kind of hostility can be, uh, can be displayed at that stage. And it also makes a lot more sense for the FAA to be interpreted sort of consistently. So we'll be watching that, court, uh, that case definitely to see what the Supreme Court says about access to federal courts uh, to kind of, to support arbitration. Absolutely. Um, absolutely, those are important ones. And class actions. Uh, so this past term, the Supreme Court decided three class action cases, all of them, you know, at least in part favorable um, uh, from our standpoint. Now, the court has already granted now three class actions for next term. And as, as Jen and I talk about next term, I think I should emphasize is that the court thus far has probably taken not even half of the cases that it will consider next term. So there's still a lot more to come. But we do know that there are another three class actions coming to go with those arbitration cases. The most important is probably the pivotal case. Um, the question is whether the Private Securities Litigation Act's uh, discovery stay provision, which means that as soon as a Securities class actions filed. There's there's a stay of discovery until the court can consider, I believe, dispositive motions. The question is whether that applies only in federal court or also in state court. Now that didn't used to be an issue because all these cases used to be in federal court, 
um, or nearly all of them. But in, in the Cyan decision, the Supreme Court allowed these cases to go forward in state court as well. Um, so the question is, does the state provision apply there as well? Uh, we filed a brief supporting cert, but it was still a surprise grant because by the nature of this issue, only state courts are looking at it and only state trial courts are really looking at it um, because you then end up seeking mandamus and the courts just deny that without opinion. So you had a bunch of unreported state trial court decisions providing the only backdrop uh, for the court to consider this issue. Normally, the court would want a you know, solid division of appellate authority before it would weigh in. And so the grant does seem to reflect, you know, an understanding of the, the importance of this issue. Um, the next case, Northwestern is one of many ERISA excessive fees cases that's out there. Um, the question is whether a complaint uh, can get past the pleading stage by alleging uh, that a 401k plan paid or charged its participants fees for investments when there were other investments that would have been available with lower fees. Um, sounds a little dry, um, but the importance is that there are, there's a huge wave of these suits uh, that's been filed nationwide, uh, challenging basically, you know, sort of steadily moving from one plan to the next um, and doing a pretty good job of getting, quickly getting uh, settlements in many cases of 20, 30, maybe even $40 million. Uh, we think it's a very abusive set of cases. Um, because, you know, for example, if, if some investments, you know, up front, you, you don't know how investments are going to turn out, for example. Uh, so some investments up front might look like, you know, they're worth higher fees, um, might not turn out that way. Um, but that's the way it goes. And so we have a pretty big project. We're starting up in these excessive fees cases to start filing amicus briefs in a lot of district courts, encouraging them to recognize what's going on and to resolve these cases at the pleading stage before defendants uh, feel compelled to settle. Uh, the final class action is CVS against Doe. Question there is whether the Rehabilitation Act, uh, which is very similar to the Americans with Disabilities Act, provides a disparate impact cause of action for plaintiffs alleging disability discrimination. Um, disparate impact has been a hot topic for years um, under a variety of different statutes, and this will be a, this will be a continuation of that. Now, beyond that, um, Jen, would you like to talk a little bit about the brewing debate over the scope or existence of Chevron deference? Sure. So I'm sure those of you who've been following uh, the Supreme Court know that there's been a lot of debate about Chevron deference, which refers to the doctrine that an agency interpreting its own statutes, the, the statutes it is sort of designated to administer, is entitled to deference to all of its reasonable interpretations thereof. Uh, and the decision was issued by the Supreme Court back in the 1980s. It has recently come under fire from, I think, at least five justices on the Supreme Court in separate writings. And they've now granted a case that sort of tees up whether Chevron deference permits HHS to take a particular action. I won't bore you with the details. It has to do with reimbursement Thank rates. Um, and it's pretty dry. But I think the the key thing here is, will the United States Supreme Court take this as an opportunity to put some guardrails on Chevron or do away with it completely? Um, we just don't know what, uh, what level of interest they have in the Chevron question, but we do know that they've been thinking about it for a long time. And uh, they've granted a case that sort of squarely tees up uh, an application of Chevron. So it'll be interesting to see. 
Yeah, fascinating, because the only question presented in the case involves the, the correct application of Chevron deference. Or the, well, things. except they did add a jurisdictional question. But yeah, yeah. the merits QP is just about right. Chevron. Right, right. Yeah, the jurisdiction is whether they can hear the case at all. But you're right, if they, if they can and they want to, because they're granted a petition, uh, right, it's just, just about Chevron. So it'll be fascinating to see what happens. Um, all right. Uh, well, it's been great talking with you, Jen, and I hope hope all the listeners out there have found this interesting and indeed made it to the end. Um, if if you have any, if you want to talk to us about anything Supreme Court related or otherwise, we've we've already filed briefs uh, this year, believe it or not, in forty different venues. Um, we'd be more than happy to talk to you. Just reach out to us at the U.S. Chamber Litigation Center. Um, you can also read a bunch uh, about what we do on our blog, uh, which is Chamber Litigation. Dot com and also get contact information for us there. Um, so Jen, it's been, uh, been nice talking with you. Nice talking with you, Daryl, as always. All right, take care, everyone.